Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. In this podcast, we explore America's crisis in civic education. Too many people today don't understand the history and principles that make us Americans. So we're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. I want to welcome everybody to this episode of The American Idea. Today, we're going to be talking about a, a really important topic uh, in the contemporary life of America, in contemporary U.S. history, the way American history is understood, the way it's done, and ultimately the way it's taught to our children and grandchildren. We'll be talking today about the 1619 Project. And for that conversation, I'm joined by a new friend of the Ashbrook Center and of American Idea, uh, Professor Miles Smith. Miles is a professor of history at Hillsdale College. Uh, I think probably many of our listeners know all about the good work being done by he, him and his colleagues at Hillsdale, including some former Ashbrook scholars who I now know are friends, in fact, with Professor Smith there at Hillsdale. Uh, his work has been uh, really a research is on the U.S. South and the Atlantic world, intellectual history, particularly ideas of freedom and slavery, uh, and also political history. So we've got someone here who really knows the subject well of history, American history broadly, but also the right way to do history, or as the professionals call it, historiography. So we're going to be talking today with Professor Smith about the 1619 Project, its history, and its historiography. Professor Smith, thank you so much for joining us today on The American Idea. Thank you, Professor Sakanga. I appreciate it. Let me start by just asking you your own work. We always like to let our guests um, tell us, describe a little bit about their work to our listeners, and particularly if a project that you're working on that you'd like to highlight. Yeah, right now I, I do a lot of work on uh, the history of American religion, how it relates to ideas of uh, freedom, authority, all those things that are kind of buzzwords uh, that we use, especially in talking about something like uh, the, the relationship between slavery and liberty in the United States. So religion's kind of my angle right now. Um, so I'm working on a book about American religion between 1800 and 1840, 50 or so. So trying to stay just enough away from the Civil War so I don't write another Civil War book. Um, so that's 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 what's keeping me busy right now. So very good. And when can our listeners be looking out for that book? I hope uh, by the spring of 2024. Um, I have to I forget what year we are uh, now. So yeah, but probably by the spring of 2024. Terrific. Let's make sure our listen our listeners out there be looking for this book by Professor Smith. All right, the 1619 Project. I bet a lot of our listeners, maybe all of them, have sort of heard of it vaguely. Let's just start with what is the 1619 Project? 
I think it's a journalistic project uh, that was birthed um, from Nicole Hannah Jones uh, at the New York Times. So it's 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 dispositions, it's methodology, how it approaches history, uh, is not the same as which a professional historian would. Uh, it's it's a journalistic creation, uh, and that doesn't mean it might not be a good journalistic creation, but it does mean that there's limitations on something like the 1619 project, and how uh, historians, especially and lay people, should understand its relationship to a relatively faithful narrative of what was happening in the revolutionary era in the early republic regarding liberty slavery uh, individual rights and things like that uh the title itself 1619 and project help our listeners understand that yeah so the the central claim i think this is this is a pretty accurate um faithful telling of it is that the founding of the American nation in as much as there is a singular founding of the American nation uh, occurred in 1619 when slaves were first bought by Virginians uh, and put to work in tobacco plantations. So this, according to Nicole Hannah Jones and the 1619 project is the founding of the American nation, not 1776 or 1789 or 1620 with the arrival of the pure of the pilgrims or even 1607 with the arrival of the first british uh, north americans it's this moment when history when when slavery enters british north american uh the colonial existence I, I think one thing worth noting is i think this is not the first time slavery's occurred in north america uh, but it was the first time it had occurred in british north america so that's the central claim that this is that 1619 is the founding of the American nation. So why is it called a project? I think the the, the stated aims of, of the principles is to reframe um, the way that history is told at the secondary level uh, in particular. Um, so middle schools and high schools, as I understand it, and to reframe the story away from a narrative about uh, a polity that actuated human liberty in the form in the form of the United States, and basically tell the story of a polity that has been devoted to white supremacy and racial inequality. As a project, is it true that it originated, um, well, sort of, I guess, 400 years, 2019 after 1619? Um, how, how did it, how, how did it first burst onto the scene? Uh, I. I actually don't know the very early uh, uh, happenings. I think when, with uh, the rhetoric around racialization in politics um, and whatnot, it became clear that there was a space now uh, for, I think I'm going to use the word iconoclastic tellings of, 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 of American history. Um, it, the disposition you think about in the news, um, police brutality, um, obviously the continued history of, of, of income inequality, all sorts of things like that. What I think it was doing was finding a space to center what we would call um, inequalities, especially along racial lines. And so it's centering that story. It's basically making racial inequality the central story of the American nation uh, instead of, <clears throat> say, 
the American founding or uh, the 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 growth of individual rights, something like that. So it's a it's a series of, a, of essays, as you said, by Nicole Hannah Jones and I suppose other contributors to the project. Um, you mentioned into the in in middle school and high school. So there's a curriculum, I think, right, that has been developed out of it, or at least curricular elements have been developed out of it for use in schools. And then I, uh, if I'm right, I think I've even seen something on the Hulu streaming service now that there's a 1619 TV show, so to speak. Yeah, there's there is uh, Hulu's uh, made a docudrama out of it. Um, it's very it's very uh, well done and, and it's um, it's it's nicely executed. Uh, the visuals are very good. Um, and so obviously there's a lot of money going into this project. Um, and uh, that uh, Hannah, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones has uh, managed, I think, to, to, to make it really a, a, a cultural um, a cultural moment. Yeah, in fact, I, th- I think I've even seen 16, 19 hats, baseball caps and other things. So there's merchandise now, I guess. Um, <laughs> all right. You said, though, it's a journalistic creation. And Nicole Hannah-Jones is a journalist, not a professional historian. You're a professional historian. Um, a number of professional historians uh, across the political spectrum have engaged the 1619 Project as history and talking about its veracity or lack of veracity as history. Tell us about the 1619 Project and its relationship to what you, I think you called it a faithful narrative of American history. I think as historians, as professional historians, we read what lay people call primary sources, and we rely as much as we can on on what's on the page. That's the the way we do history. We have to sort of uh, use the written narrative of human experience that's done through a variety of different type of documents, and we read what's on the page. And so we try as best we can to 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 sort of assume that there is some sort of relationship between what's on that page and what the person is saying they're going to do or what they believe etc 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 so what we don't do is create a story and then go back and sort of use documents to support the story that we've created for historians we have to sort of let those documents lead us to a story we can't kind of predetermine where it goes with uh, say a journalistic project if someone feels strongly about something you can go find uh, a group of documents and do a lot with them Um, historians methodologically don't do that we don't have a set sort of end result of what we think a document is going to lead to Um, we may have a hunch but we don't really set up the end for what the document's going to to lead to so there's a kind of um maybe this is the wrong word uh, and if it is correct me is there a kind of polemical quality to the 1619 project? It's innately polemical, I think. Obviously, the, uh, you can't find a document written by any Virginian in 1619 that says, hey, guys, why don't we found a nation on slavery? You, you, there's no, there isn't anything that says that. Um, and so what you sort of have to do is, is basically tell people, hey, guys, there's a story that hasn't been told here. And... It, we know this story happened because this thing happened down the line. And so now we have to go kind of get the pieces uh, in the past and set them up in such a way that they tell this story. So it's innately polemical. 
it's it's about essentially how to tell the story that you want to be told uh, without sort of even necessarily seeing where the documents go themselves. So uh, when I'm looking at the 1619 project, to my mind, and and uh, correct me or or modify, revise what I'm saying here, but to my mind, it does raise two important questions. One is just the simple fact of, you know, 1619. Okay, so when was the founding of America, right? And how do we decide that? And the second question in my mind is, okay, what's the best way to really do history? Um, take the first question and unpack that for us a little bit. It does seem to raise the question. It's not 1776, as you said. It's not 1620. It's not 1789. It's 1619. Um, what's the argument that this, the project makes for that date? The, the argument um, that's made is essentially uh, an argument by implication. The implication is that America is, is a society that's racist and unequal by nature. And so that therefore there must be a first cause of racism and inequality and the most readily identifiable first cause that was identified by the creators of the 1619 project was the uh, introduction of African slavery in 1619 into Virginia. I think that the, the, the problem with that is of course um, this, this idea of founding. Um, historians, we, I might say the American Republic was created as a constitutional entity in 1789, but a historian probably wouldn't even say that America was founded in 1789. They probably wouldn't say America was even founded in 1776. And historians and, and, and political scientists use different words to describe the creation of political entities. But by founding, it sort of implies almost a metaphysical sort of baptism or whatever event is going on. Historians, we don't operate that way. Uh, we're not looking for those sort of um, grand founding moments. And so as a historian, I probably couldn't say that America was founded in any given date. I could say that the Constitution created a republic or the republic was created on a certain day. But founding implies almost this kind of total metaphysical, almost cosmological um, sort of creation. And there's, it's hard, it's hard to find that in any given historical moment. So if, if the 1619 project says, no, there was this decisive moment, as you say, 1619, the introduction of African slaves. And from then on, that's both a product of racist ideas, but also then perpetuates and strengthens those ideas in the United States and creates what you said, inequality, uh, white supremacy, uh, uh, racial hegemony, injustice, all of that through the slave system and then beyond. All right. If that's the basic narrative, if that's the story the 1619 Project is trying to tell, um, who are some of the important characters in their mind in that story? There's a, every story has heroes. Every story has villains. Yeah, I think the the characters are um, colonial and early republic leadership. You can think of it's kind of the, what we the group we call the founding fathers. Um, I think what's interesting about the 1619 project is it doesn't ever get down too deep in the woods of specific historical actors doing specific historical things. 
And part of that's because that's not its point. If you get down and you drill down on what a specific historical actor is doing, you might find that it actually clouds the, the, the story. It messes with the narrative. Um, and so what you have to do is just say something like, well, George Washington owned slaves. Yeah, he freed them at, at, the, at, at his wife's death, but he owned slaves. And he uh, used um, people to go get escaped slaves. So this is, this is something you might look at as, as sort of being one of the things that's identified. The problem with that is that is his relationship and you will say it doesn't deal with how he related to, for example, the institution of slavery at the federal level. Washington doesn't seem particularly intent on strengthening it at the federal level throughout his presidency. And so something like that, if I actually drill down and look at what the documents say about uh, chattel slavery, I might not have the story of an abolitionist, but I don't have the story of someone whose reason for assuming office and for reason for, for being the president of the United States is to right perpetuate racism and and inequality and slavery etc cetera, etc cetera. so washington is one character obviously in that story as you say uh it turns out it, it's it's very complex the story of george washington and slavery and it doesn't right. fall neatly into a particular narrative um as you know professional historians like yourself have published criticisms of it as history what besides perhaps the example of washington to your mind what are some other important examples of people either praising or criticizing the 1619 project as history the loudest voices of historians and the most notable historians have typically been somewhat critical now, these are men like joe ellis um, jack rayco james mcpherson um, sean Wilentz. Um, Gordon Wood, sort of the, the I'll call them the the venerable voices of, of historiography of the American Revolution, the early republic, when I was in grad school. These men are, are uncomfortable with it, I think precisely because the, the documents written in the revolutionary era are of men, for the most part, pretty uncomfortable <clears throat> with chattel slavery. That does not mean they're all abolitionists. That doesn't mean uh, any of them would sign on a line saying, I am an anti-slavery devotee. But nonetheless, if the central claim is that that the, um, the founding of the American nation is something that's devoted to perpetuating a specific type of racist inequality, you can't find people not only celebrating that idea, you can't even find people comfortable with it as you go through the documents surrounding the 1770s and 1780s. There's a lot of men actually, who say the opposite. They're pretty uncomfortable with it. Something they imply is going to have to change. You can think of a man like even Southerners, Henry Lawrence. Uh, Jefferson has, has his own quotes that show he's not particularly comfortable with it. Um, all sorts of quotes that you can find. And I think these historians just recognize there's a kind of a treasure trove of documents of guys who are at least uncomfortable with it. This is not the, the documentation of a group of men we're setting out to create a republic sort of founded on sustaining a certain idea of inequality or, or, or you know, sort of a racist division, whatnot. That might have been incidental uh, because of the, the social foundations of their given uh, societies, but it wasn't the point. It wasn't the telos 
of the creation of the American Republic. And I understand that some of some of the claims that were made, historical claims that were made in the original set of essays, were, when they were subject to criticism, have been modified to some degree. I'm thinking of one, for example, of uh, the, the, the one of the reasons or the main reason that the colonists wanted to separate from Britain was because they were afraid of an abolitionist movement starting in Britain coming to them. And so right. they wanted independence for the sake of preserving the slave system. Yeah, that particular um that particular uh, criticism is is a useful one because, of course, the American colonies weren't the only ones that had slavery. Most of Britain's colonies in the Western Hemisphere had had slavery. So why didn't the Bahamas or Barbados or Trinidad or Tobago or Navis or one of the other islands, why didn't they join up uh, to protect slavery? Why were they comfortable in the British Empire, which ostensibly was going after slavery. Uh, Jamaica is, is a good example. Um, so if that's the central sort of motivation, it doesn't explain why these other groups, uh, why these other colonies didn't participate in the American Revolution. And so that's a useful criticism on that in, in that regard. If you're looking at this and trying to evaluate it historic, uh, historically, the, the sort of arc of the story as it goes forward, in your mind as someone who studied this, what are some of you mentioned one of one of the characters, George Washington, who's present? Who are some of the other characters in this story that you would expect to be present who aren't or who are present? And that's a little surprising to you. That's a good question. One of the things about the 1619 Project, the book that has sort of, I think, compiled the, the material is that it's surprisingly heavier on 20th century um, figures than one might expect for a book that's spending most of its energy litigating a tradition that is, according to it, ostensibly founded in the 17th and, and 18th centuries. Um, there's not a lot of intellectuals from the 18th or even early 19th centuries uh, in, in the text. I think it's, it's telling that actually the abolitionists don't show up a lot. Um, Anti-slavery politicians don't show up that much. And I think the reason why is because by the lights of the 1619 Project, what's happening isn't really abolition or anti-slavery, that, that those movements didn't really work, that the American, um, that, excuse me, the Civil War doesn't really free slavery, that the Emancipation Proclamation doesn't really do anything. So I think that the, the, the essential sort of interesting thing for me about it is that for 150 years, since the Civil War, there's just been an understanding there's a group of people who are agitating against slavery, even as either as politicians or as writers or cultural figures or whatever, and that they had some impact. May not have had a lot, but they had some impact. And I think that the 1619 Project's proposition is essentially that they didn't really do anything, that nothing really changed. Not even the Civil War changes that much. So I think my question has been if this is a tradition that has always sort of been there it seems like you would spend a lot of time litigating the 17th and 18th and 19th century and there's quite a bit of 20th century material in there especially when regarding law enforcement mm. so someone like for example the great black abolitionist of the 19th century frederick Douglass, um who clearly i'm thinking of his speech what to the slave is the fourth of july it's a searing criticism of the current generation he's speaking to in the 1850s 
but in part his criticism is we're not living up to the principles of our founding. And I think he explicitly cites the example of George Washington in that speech. And even Washington could not go to the grave without breaking the chains of his slaves. Yeah, uh, genius idea of the American founding. That's Douglas's language, absolutely. And so he, does he appear, for example, as a prominent character in the 1619 story? No, he's, he's not a particularly prominent character. There's allusions to him, but he, again, he's... Um, he's not doing the right things. His, his statements aren't saying the right things. Douglas, for example, is a, it's a ferocious devotee. Um, the, what, what we might call the quote unquote American founding, especially after the civil war. Um, he's a devotee of, of, of the Republican party. He says at one point he views it as the most important protector of rights, um, for, for, for slaves. So I think, um, Douglas is not going to appear because he's not saying something that necessarily um, neatly dovetails with with the polemical direction of the 1619. And then you you said, of course, that there's a lot of characters from the 20th century that that come into the story. Um, you know, I think if our listeners would be thinking of the struggle for equality, equal citizenship, they would be thinking of people like. Um, well, they might think of Booker T. Washington in the 20th century. They might think of W.E.B. Du Bois and the argument and the debate between those two. They would certainly think of characters like Martin Luther King Jr., uh, figure very prominently in the way that many people think about the, that those issues. Are they present in any significant way in the 1619 story? Yes, but when they are, and Martin Luther King's a good example, what, what's, what's, what's happened is that uh, Martin Luther King is presented for example, um, as someone who was more radical than than what he's traditionally been presented as. I think of, um, for example, the language that he uses regarding based nonviolent protesting. The, the, the polemic of the 1619 Project basically turns that into nonviolence so long as X happens. And so someone like Martin Luther King is presented really as sort of a closet um, a closet radical in a way that traditionally, and I think that at least most of the literature surrounding him um, presents him as radical in as much as he's committed to, to equality and committed to using radical nonviolent measures. But uh, <clears throat> Martin Luther King um, wasn't, to my knowledge, uh, a particularly racist person. He didn't have a sort of hatred of whites, nor did he have a polemic where it's sort of... Um, uh, accusing whites because they were white of being um, racist or being devoted to inequality. It was always the inequality itself um, that was that was the issue. So I think that some of those figures are being racialized in ways um, that is not traditionally been done with them. What about that? The, uh, the other question then, not only just sort of what's the founding of America and sort of what's the story of America as it unfolds, but the question of how do we best do history? It seems like the 1619 Project, as you said, wants to reframe American history around this date and around the issues that come out of it. Um, I, the implication is that's a better way to do history than how historians have been doing it up till now. What do you, what oh, yeah. do you think about that methodological argument? I think that it's it's a good one. I think one of the questions that I wonder is, we typically think that history is neutral. We use this word that his, history is neutral. 
I think what we've always realized is societies tell the stories they think need to be told. They privilege aspects of history they think are necessary to privilege for the maintenance of what is good about their society. Um, and so, obviously, for example, we would tell the story of the development of individual freedoms and civil liberties as an important part of the story of the United States. And that would be sort of a, 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 a sort of a central part of what it was to be learning history. And so it's essentially what 1619 Project does in some ways is say, you know what, that's right. All these other states that were sort of refusing to allow slavery and Abraham Lincoln, all the experience of free states, the experience of anti-slavery politics, that wasn't actually the story that should have been told. The Confederacy story was the one that got it right because they understood this was really all about slavery and racial inequality a la the American South from the get-go. And the rest of America didn't believe that, but you know what, rest of America, you're wrong, the Confederacy's right. And that's the story that we kind of need to tell. Wow, what an unusual pairing. That's not what you would normally expect, right? You mentioned already though, okay, despite the criticisms that have been leveled against it by professional historians, and as you said, the, the, some of the folks you mentioned, like Sean Willens, is definitely a person politically of the left. No right. question about that. Um, Despite these, this fact, it does seem like since its publication in 2019, over the last three, four years, that its reach and its public prominence has grown. Tell, tell our listeners a little bit about where the 1619 Project stands today. I think your point about it kind of becoming a brand uh, is, is useful. It, it's, it's, it's a telemedia creation, and I think this is part of what makes it it powerful and influential. <clears throat> Telemedia drives so much of our conversation, um, social media, television, um, things like that. And so really, if, if you've got something that's kind of hitting the things that, that get you that engagement on social media and telemedia, you're going to get interest in it no matter what. The, the novelty of it, um, it's transgressive in, in particular ways. And so I think that we live in an era where people, the civil catechesis isn't done the same way it, it used to. And so we live in an era where people are deeply sort of, I, I think, not only divided, but they're unsure of, can I trust this story that, that the United States actually did create a government that cared about individual liberty? And the answer would be, well, yes, you can. And the answer back would be, well, what about slavery? True. Uh, Right. We, we, we recall a narrative that's human. We understand that injustice <clears throat> and justice coexists along with a lot of other things. But societies, to, to sort of perpetuate themselves, sort of tell people things that they need to know that will make them do what they should. Right. The reason why we don't tell people um, that racism and slavery is the point is because we don't want people to think that racism and slavery is the point. Um, and so I, I, th I think what's happened is, is over the last few years, I think it's probably 10 to 15 years, um, there's been sort of um, discomfort with, or a, a discomfort with relying on the narrative that was, I think, probably told for a good solid 150 years about, yep, you know, the US government, um, imperfect as it was, incrementally, 
uh, <clears throat> brought about, uh, you know, through through thick and thin and through fights and, and all sorts of things, eventually got to the place where African-Americans could enjoy civil rights. If the Confederacy story was the one that was told, we would say, well, there's a problem with that. Um, so I think mm -hmm. it's, people are uncomfortable uh, sort of with relying on history. And that has a lot to do with probably history as a profession, um, telemedia and all sorts of things. I wish I had all the good answers on that. Well, let me push you on one part of that answer. Yeah. What in your mind then, what's a better way to teach American history, whether it's at the college level where you and I might happen to be, or whether it's at the high school, middle school level, elementary school level, what's a better way to teach American history? I teach at Hillsdale College and uh, we kind of understand ourselves as standing within a certain intellectual tradition. And we, 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 you can use throwaway words, Judeo-Christian, Western, whatever you want to use. And so I think at baseline, we kind of understand that there, <clears throat> there, there is truth and truth can be known. And that uh, truth can be known in the written narrative of human existence. So I think that's, that's kind of a small baseline thing, but it's substantive because if I'm, I'm learning about human experience, and I understand there is truth that's going to inform what I go look for. So if truth is a, is a bedrock, then you can say, okay, can I, can I know the other things that have been termed a person? Can I know goodness? Can I know beauty? Um, it, if you know those things, you'll know the bad stuff too. You'll know what's not good. You'll know what's not beautiful. You'll know what's not true. And so I think just, just sort of having some sort of metaphysical and doesn't need to be deeply religious. I don't mean that someone has to be a certain you know, denomination of a particular religion, but just having a metaphysical commitment that allows you to say, we are looking for truth. And that's what history is. Um, it, truth is may not be what I want it to be all the time. But I think if you can just have some sort of metaphysical foundation that allows you to say history is the pursuit of truth and truth can be known and truth isn't something that moves around. It's not something that's shifting all under our feet all the time. But it can be known and it's something that is <clears throat> that is permanent too. To 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 do that though requires certain um, I'll, I'll call them virtues, certain virtues of the historian themselves, of maybe of the journalist who's writing about these things in, in American history, about the students who engage in this pursuit. Tell us a little bit in your opinion about what the virtues are for really doing good history and understanding American history. Yeah, I think I think the virtues are understanding that um, when you're pursuing knowledge, in this case of, of the history of the, of the American Republic and of British North America, perhaps that preceded it, you're having to do the courtesy of understanding that you are not in yourself able to sort of determine what is true just through your own willpower, just through your own passions. And so I think a major virtue is sort of controlling your passions. A lot of us feel strongly about a lot of causes and racial equality is a good cause to feel passionately about, but I can't let my personal passions about what I think might need to be the end goal for society or anything else determine my relationship with the documents I read with the history that's, that's there in the text. And so, a, a sense of gravity and sober-mindedness 
and not letting our passions get the best of us is really important <clears throat> because <laughs> we we all get excited about certain things um but that our own excitements can't actually determine what what is true um maybe this is an unfair question but i'm just thinking as we move through our conversation um in your mind if it can be boiled down again maybe it's not a fair question what's the lesson of the 1619 project i i think the lesson of the 1619 project is is one essentially of gratitude and ingratitude now that that's interesting that's not what i thought you were going to say <laughs> yeah yeah in as much as there there are virtues i think i think of gratitude um as something that's that's something everybody can kind of say is a good thing no matter what your religious views are it's good to be grateful i think that we take so much for granted i think about the fact that we live in a relatively free uh, society we we <clears throat> were able to enjoy liberties and those liberties have some starting point i like the liberties i enjoy i appreciate the life i have i hope i am grateful on some level I think what the 1619 project would ask me to do is to throw away the foundations of what I've actually been very blessed to experience. The 1619 project, I think, would sort of ask me to invalidate the polity, the ideas, the institutional foundations that have given me and I think millions of other people in the United States a relatively good life. And the answer, people might be quick to say, well, what about what about people who don't have as good of a life as you do? I think what's interesting is that answer has been given by particularly African-Americans throughout history. And their answer was not tear it all down. Their answer was to point back to those same institutions and the same liberties that I'm talking about and say, yep, you know what, you're right. Those are really good things. We have to do better at, at claiming those. So I, th I think it's a question of gratitude. Things might always be able to be worse. Um, I think that what's really remarkable is that if you read letters, especially from Freeman <clears throat> in the 1880s and 90s, you get a sense that no matter how much, how bad Jim Crow is, they're still not slaves anymore. And that's a really, really, really substantive claim for them to make. Yeah, thank you very much. What an interesting uh, take. What an interesting insights into the 1619 project. Uh, Professor Miles Smith, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on The American Idea. Let me recommend to everybody that um, you check out Professor Smith's work uh, and make sure you, uh, if when that book comes out, make sure you buy it. It's going to be terrific. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Miles Smith, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on The American Idea. Thank you, Dr. Skanga. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.